0: Y'all turn with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 5. Colossians 3, verse 5. We are continuing our series on what it means to grow in Christ. What is, it, what is God trying to do in your life? What you know, the, the salvation by grace does not just mean you go to heaven when you die. It means you become a new person. And it doesn't happen overnight. It, it happens, that's the work of a lifetime. That's the project God is. is building in your life right now from the day you stepped into His family. And it won't stop until the day you stand in His presence. So what is He doing? What is He making you into? We've talked about love and joy and peace and how these are supposed to be parts of your character that are growing more and more every day as you walk with God. This last week, after we talked about peace, I know that several of you had conversations, difficult but needed conversations, with people you've been at odds with. And I hope that went well. I hope that at least was a beginning of reconciliation. And some long, long unhealed wounds started to get healed this week. But today we're going to talk about a fourth A fourth virtue that Christ is building in you if you will let Him. And that is the virtue of patience. And I know some of you are thinking, I came here on the wrong Sunday. I don't need to hear about patience. I don't want to hear about patience. Let me tell you something. Patience is listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 for a reason. It is something we desperately, desperately need. There are two different words in Scripture for patience. Two different concepts of patience that the Bible talks about. One is the idea of being patient when you have to wait. And none of us like that, but the Bible talks about it. For instance, it will say, Jesus is returning, but it's going to be a while. It may take longer than you hoped, so be patient. Don't give up hope. This sermon may take longer than you hoped, so be patient. Don't give up hope. The other kind of patience is the one we're talking about today. And it's, it's actually in Greek, it's pronounced makrothumia, the word that is used in Galatians 5 and in the passage we're about to read here in Colossians 3. Makrothumia is an interesting Greek word. Macro means long, and thumia means tempered. So long-tempered. It means basically being able to hold your temper and not lose it, not go ballistic on people, not, not uh, blow your stack. If you have an older translation of the Bible, it will say long-suffering. When I was in college, I played in a softball tournament in Nacogdoches on the campus at Stephen F. Austin. It was a BSU, Baptist Student Union tournament, so a lot of the Baptists from University of Houston went up there, and all these other colleges were there. Now, I had extra motivation to play well. I've never been a great athlete, but had extra motivation to play well that day because I had just started dating this slender, dark-haired, green-eyed girl that I was really, really excited about, and she made the trip, and she was going to be in the stands, so I really needed to play well. My first at bat, I got thrown out at second trying to stretch a single into a double. Now, I was safe, but they called me out, so, you know, that's the way it goes. I just got up and kind of took my took my licks and went back to the dugout. Second time up, I hit a nice line drive into left center, and as I was running toward first base, I saw the left fielder bobble it, so I thought, okay, I'm getting second this time. And I was running with all I had, and I even, I even did the head first slide, which they tell you not to do because you can break fingers, etc. cetera, but I've, I felt my fingers hit the bag, and then I felt the glove hit me, and I knew I was safe. And I heard him say, you're out. And so I jumped up, covered head to toe in red dirt, and just started yelling at this umpire. And I didn't cuss, I'm, I know I didn't, but I, remember, I don't, exactly, don't exactly remember what I said, but it was something along the lines of, that's the second time you've cheated me? Is this some kind of conspiracy? What are you doing? I yelled for a little while, and he sort of just regarded me the way a teacher regards a wayward kindergartner. Um, and then I ran off the field, and on my way off the field, I kicked the dugout, kicked the metal cage, and it made this real satisfying rattling noise. And I sat down on the bench, all full of sub, somewhat righteous indignation. And I, was, I noticed that none of my teammates said anything to me. You know, nobody came over and said, yeah, you were robbed or yelled at the umpire with me, which kind of bothered me. Later on, I found out that 30 seconds before that at bat, my girlfriend in the stands, whose name was Carrie, you might know her. Um, I can introduce you. Um... She had just seen an old friend of hers, a high school friend who was a student at Stephen F. Austin. And that friend had come over and sat next to her in the stands, and I had walked up to the plate at that exact moment, and she had said, oh, look, there's, there's Jeff, that's my boyfriend. And after my little display, the friend had said, well, you sure picked a winner. <laughs> True story. And, and when she told me the story later, I, I felt so embarrassed. That I had acted that way. I mean, I already felt embarrassed. I'd already gone and apologized to the umpire. And, but it, it, it let me know that I had a problem. I had a real issue. Frederick Buechner, Christian author and, and preacher, he wrote these words long ago. He's now in heaven. But he wrote, Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. And he's right. And I felt such a sense of embarrassment that I had acted like a fool and I began to pray You know they tell you never pray for patience that is baloney I know I know people say that and they laugh it's not funny it's not true we need patience I needed patience I still need patience and I I began to improve as I prayed that the Lord would change my heart and then then that slender green-eyed dark-haired girl and I got married and then I realized I needed patience even more and then we had children. I thought, I thought I'd conquered it by then. And then we had children. And I realized all over again no, I still need patience. And y'all, I'm, I mean, it's, it's, that's over half of my life ago. I'm still praying for it every day. Every day. Lord, teach me patience. There are two things I believe about anger. And I get this not from scripture necessarily, and not from any kind of scientific study just from my own battle with anger in my own heart. But I believe these with all my heart. And then we'll get into the Scripture. Number one, anger is a choice. Every time you lose it, you've chosen to do that. I guarantee you there, would be, there are certain circumstances under which in that particular instance you would have held your temper. But at that moment, you thought it was safe to just let it flow. Let it out and erupt. It is a choice. Secondly, anger is a habit. You make that choice often enough, it becomes easier and easier to blow your stack. To hurt someone else. It's a vicious cycle. We start to get to the point where when someone talks to us in that tone of voice, it's immediate. When someone treats us in that way, when I feel that emotion rising up within me, I no longer hold it back anymore. I no longer worry about it because I have set myself up into a pattern where I now know I attack I explode I go off it becomes a habit a vicious cycle but habits can be broken cycles can be disrupted and that's what I want to talk to you about today because the truth is there are a lot of people in this room and I don't know this because I know you well I know this because statistics will tell will bear me out on this in a group this size there are a lot of people in this room that have an issue with anger There are a lot of people in this room who have a hard time holding their temper, who blow their stack way too often, who act in a way that later on they feel ashamed. That hurt people around them. And many of them would never admit it. Would say, no, 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 you don't understand. My anger is justified. No, I am angry because I've been oppressed. I've been mistreated. You don't understand. I think I do. I think I've been there. So how do we break that vicious cycle? There's a lot of scriptures I could have used. James has a great passage, uh, the very brother of Jesus, where he says, the anger of human beings does not accomplish the righteous life that that God desires. But I, I chose to use this one, Colossians 3, verse 5 through 13, because it has so much teaching about how to overcome anger in it. It says, put to death, therefore... Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming." Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So, what does he say about overcoming anger? He says a lot in here, but the first thing I take from this is if you want to overcome this vicious cycle, this pattern we're in, you have to first admit you need to change. And that's the hardest part. It's admitting that you have a problem because we always have excuses, we blame heredity. It's because my dad. My dad had a bad temper. My mom, she was always, always blowing her stack. So I just kind of learned it from them. Or I've got that same blood flowing through my veins. I can't help myself. Or we blame our circumstances. You don't know. If you were married to that person, you'd get angry a lot too. No, no, no. You don't understand. If you worked in this company, if you had to put up with what I had to put up with, you would lose it too. We do anything but say, I've got a problem. I have an issue. I need to change. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. It says, You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger and rage are the first two things He mentions. What He's saying here is you need to consider that part of your old nature. Part of the person you used to be. I don't know if you're familiar with this. If you've been in church a while, maybe you are. But Jesus, when He was talking to one of the religious leaders of Israel, Nicodemus, A guy whose credentials, religiously speaking, were impeccable. And Jesus said, you can't get into the kingdom of God the way you are. You have to be born again. That's where we get this idea of born-again Christian. Now, unfortunately, in the years since Jesus spoke those words 2,000 years ago, we've turned that into a label, sort of a category of Christian. Here's a Christian, but here's a born-again Christian. They're like holy rollers, Bible thumpers, born-again types. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus said there's only one type of Christian, not Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, Episcopalian, Charismatic. There's one type of Christian. That's the born again kind. That means when you come into the family of God, when you say, I need God's grace that Jesus purchased for me at the cross when he died for me, you become a new person. Your life starts over. You get a reset. Now, the old you is still around. Like the, you know, the, the embarrassing uncle that won't leave the party, the old you is still in your life and it's your job to get rid of him or her little by little, piece by piece as you walk with God. And part of that is going to be that anger, that rage that has always been part of you, that you used to make excuses for, but you don't anymore. You recognize it as something you're ashamed of. You recognize it as something from the old life that caused Jesus to have to die. And you don't, you don't laugh about it anymore. You don't think it's cute anymore. You just you just you fight against it with the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. In let's be honest, in the church, we excuse anger. We make excuses for anger in a way we wouldn't for other sins. I told you a story just a minute ago about me losing my temper. Of course that was over 20 years ago, but even so, not one of you got up and walked out at that point. But if I would have said a dirty word, a word that you hear all the time in PG-13 movies, many of you would be ready to tell me I don't get to be the pastor anymore. Why do we categorize sins that way? Why do we say it's okay if I leave this place and go to a restaurant and I'm short-tempered with the waiter or waitress there? Nobody is on me about that. Nobody's on me if they find out that I yelled at my son or my daughter because they were testing my patience. We just say, well, you know, people are human. We make excuses for it. And we shouldn't. Anger is that destructive. I'm not saying judge others. I'm saying judge ourselves. I'm saying just because others overlook your short temper doesn't mean you should. Admit you have a problem. In New Orleans is the National World War II Museum, and I can't say this highly enough, uh, strongly enough, that is the best museum I've ever been to. Every time I go, there's something new. Last time I went, I had my son Will with me, and they had this new exhibit based on the USS Tang, the, one of the more successful um, submarines in the U.S. fleet during the war. Uh, it sank 33 enemy vessels. Now, in this replica in New Orleans, you can actually go inside and be a part of a simulation of the Tang's last mission in the Pacific Ocean, October 25th, 1944. Um, You actually sit in the seat of one of the sailors and you push the buttons or dial the knobs that that sailor would have done while there's all these explosions and orders being shouted out. And it's very, very exciting. I I highly recommend it and they didn't pay me to say that. But here's the interesting thing. In the actual mission of the USS Tang on, on October 25th, 1944, they sank several enemy vessels, but their last torpedo, the last torpedo ever fired by that ship, actually missed its target, boomeranged, and came back toward the sub. Now, the commander of that, of that sub was an was a experienced, ma- uh, experienced sailor, Commander Richard O'Kane. He saw what was going on. He ordered evasive maneuvers, but it was too late. The, the, the torpedo slammed into the side of the submarine, and it went down. Nine survivors, 78 sailors, drown at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And that's a good picture of what happens to us when we just fire off our volleys of anger unhindered. When we just say, I have the right to express myself. I have the right to go on the offensive. I have the right to let my emotions flow. It comes back to us eventually. Even if you don't care about other people you're hurting, eventually it will hit you right in the heart. So put it to death. Say to the Lord, Lord, I admit I have a problem. I admit that I say things sometimes when I'm angry that I'm embarrassed about later. I admit there are times when I'm just, frankly, out of control. And I act in ways that I'm ashamed of. So put that part of me, Lord, to death. And then verse 12 goes on to say, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. You get the you get the picture of someone who's wearing ratty clothes, disgusting garments and they take all that off and they clean themselves up and they put on something clean and new and fresh and it changes everything about the way they look. That's what that's what Paul is trying to show us here. We need to put on the garments of Christ that only he can provide and one of those is patience. He can make us patient people. He can make us long-suffering admit you need to change there are some of the there are people in this room I've been praying for you all week that for the first time in your life right now your spouse your your loved ones are praying the same thing for the first time in your life you would say I need to deal with this but you can't do it on your own you let the Lord work so the second thing admit you need to change but second thing begin to see people through God's eyes see people through the eyes of God verse 13 says bear with one another bear with one another you know what that is I love it it's an acknowledgement that people are obnoxious it's an obnoxious it's it's an admission that some folks are hard to get along with now let me ask you something let me let me just do a, a mental exercise with you can you think of someone you know who pushes your buttons, who's hard to get along with, who is obnoxious, who drives you crazy, who drives you up a wall, who's like fingernails on a chalkboard? You've already gotten it, haven't you? You already know. You've already got somebody pictured, right? It may be somebody in this room. It may be the person next to you. Don't look at them. Don't look at them right now. I want you to think about that person for just a moment, okay? Now, now, now realize this. That person is a child of God. I'm going to say something that's going to irritate some of you. In fact, some of you are going to like me less after I say this, but you know it's true. Babies are the least considerate people on earth, right? I mean, they are, they are the most inconsiderate humans ever. A baby will, will cry at the worst possible times. I mean, when the food shows up. You've been waiting, baby's been fine, food is on the plate on your table. That's when she needs to be taken out and, and you know, walked around because she's freaking out. She, she wakes up in the middle of the night when everyone else should be sleeping. She has no concern for your sleep. It's all about her. She, she or he will put this radioactive stuff in his diaper and says, hey, you're going to have to deal with it. That's, that's not my problem. Now I'm just going to wear this around. This is my cologne. This is Chanel number 2, okay? You like that? I'm glad you're as immature as I am. <laughs> and and just when things get good, she's calm, he's fine, you're getting along, cuddled up, holding 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 that baby just real near, he reaches up and he rips off your eyelid, right? I mean, it's it's just total inconsideration and yet and yet think about this for a moment if you're keeping somebody else's child and we've all done this right you're keeping someone else's baby and they're keeping you up at night or they're keeping you from eating or they're hurting you or they're annoying you you don't pay them back you take it every bit of it why two reasons number one you recognize this is an infant they're not, they're not of, course, of course everything's all about them. They're not to the point yet where they have awareness of other humans and their needs. You understand that. Number two, this child belongs to someone who you love, who you care about, and you know that if you did anything to harm this child, they would never forgive you. Now think about this. Think again about that person who pushes all your buttons. That person you find it so hard to to be in the same room with. That person is God's child. And He looks on them with more love than any mother ever looked on her baby. He created that person. He died to redeem that person. He has a plan for that person that is eternally significant. And He cares about how you treat them. He says, listen, of course they're selfish. You are too. I'm working on you both. Eventually, I'll get you to the point where you think of others more than you think of yourselves, but you're not there yet. You're my child. He's your child. He's he's my child. Love each other. Pray. Pray for those people that push your buttons. Pray to God and say, Lord, help me to see them through your eyes. Help me to see them as valuable, as precious in your sight. Number three, overcoming this demon inside of you. Admit you need to change. See people through God's eyes and then show the mercy that God showed you. Show, show the mercy that God showed you. Verse 13 says it Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's very simple. It's hard to do, but the command is right there. The same amount of forgiveness God has given to you, you should give to others. I'm going to tell you a story that I didn't exactly make up. This is a version of one of Jesus' parables. Brought into modern day. There was a man who had a house that he owned. It wasn't where he lived. It was passed down to him from family. And it had been around a while. It was in kind of rotten shape. He decided to renovate it and make it into a rental property. And he poured a lot of money and a lot of his own sweat and a lot of his own time into this house. And when he was done, it was spectacular. It was this beautiful house. White picket fence, new paint and siding. Uh, brand new windows, wood floors. Looked great. Great. And he got hundreds of of applications in the mail and online for people, apartment dwellers in the city, who said, I want to live in a place like that. Out of all the applications he received, there was one that was by far the worst. And it happened to be from a friend of his son's. Now this young man, this kid, had no good credit. He had no references. He had no income to pay the rent and he had a criminal record and so anybody would have said this is a bad decision but the man said you know this is a friend of my son's everybody needs someone to believe in them I'm going to let him rent this house from me and it didn't take long for the neighbors to see that the man had made a bad choice because there were loud parties late into the night there were broken windows that never got repaired there were motorcycle and, and truck tracks all through the yard and the the white picket fence was starting to fall apart they didn't even want to think about what was going on inside that house and what kind of damage was being done what made things worse was the boy hadn't even paid any rent and it had been several months the man had sent him notices in the mail they'd gone unanswered he had left phone mail voicemail messages that had gone unreplied to he had even gone by the house when he'd seen the car parked in front knocking on the door, but no response. Finally, the man's son said, Dad, let me go. We're old friends. I can talk some sense into him, but that was the worst decision of all because when the son confronted the the boy about his lack of payment and his bad treatment of the house, the boy in anger shot the son to death. Now, you might think that the Father, the the landlord in that case would press charges. This boy would go to prison the rest of his life, and that would be the end of the story. But actually what happened was, the father said, I forgive you. Not only do I forgive you, I'm adopting you. You've ruined the house I let you live in, but now come into a new house where everything is the way it ought to be. Jesus told us that story because when He was telling that story, it was actually a, a landlord in a vineyard in His version. But as he was telling that story, you and I are the tenants. God is the landlord. And He was saying, I'm I'm the Son. And God has given you everything you have and you've wasted it. You've perverted it with your anger and your, your other sins. And you've refused to listen to the words My Father has sent you. In word and in voice, you've ignored all of His prophecies and all of His warnings and all of His loving kind commands and now I'm here I'm here to show you the truth and you're going to kill me too and yet instead of destroying you instead of bringing down catastrophe on your life my death will be your salvation that will be the door that my father will use to get into your life to forgive you if you're willing and to say you've ruined the life I've given you so I'm going to give you a brand new life come on in for all who want it come on in And that's the story of the gospel it's not about here's a bunch of rules to follow it's about here's a new life that's that's waiting for you if you're willing to receive it by grace now i ask you the question that's your story that's my story that's the story of us and it is how can we ever refuse to forgive someone else and please understand when i say forgive i don't mean getting over it There are some of you that have been hurt so badly and and so recently you can't just snap your fingers and feel fine. I'm not talking about the emotion. I'm talking about the choice you make to say, you've hurt me, but I'm going to choose not to hurt you back. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to treat you with kindness. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to pray for good things to happen to you and I'm going to act in your interest. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to forgive you because I didn't deserve it when God forgave me and continues to forgive me. And how many of you this morning would have to admit, yeah, there's somebody who right now I need to forgive. Right now I I just need to go before the Lord and say I forgive this person. I need to change the way I behave toward them. And I'm going to need His help. Lee Strobel, most of you know that name. very famous Christian author. Apologist for the Gospel. Um, His most famous book is The Case for Christ, where he goes carefully through in conversations with experts and shows the evidence that's on the side of faith. He's written many others, very, very persuasive books that help people fight through their own intellectual objections to faith in Christ. Before Lee Strobel was a Christian, he was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was also a thoroughgoing atheist. He tells the story of the day he got saved, his daughter Allison was five years old. And Allison, all she'd ever known was a dad who was stressed to the max and was constantly angry. He came home one day from work so angry he kicked a hole in the the kitchen wall. He says several times he can remember his daughter hiding from him in her own room because she was just afraid at how angry her dad was. He looks back on that with shame, and yet he says the amazing thing was a couple of months after... I came into the family of God. My little five-year-old girl went up to her mom and said, I want God to do for me what He did for Daddy. And he said, now you think about this. I make my living writing books trying to convince people that Jesus is who He said He was using all these intellectual arguments and archaeological evidence and the most important person in my life, my five-year-old daughter, she came to faith not because of any of that, she didn't know evidence. She didn't care about evidence. All she knew was her daddy used to be this, and now he's this. And I like this a whole lot better. And that's the power of God. That's what should be happening in our lives. Not overnight. But it should be evident. Here's the really exciting part, okay? If you begin to take this seriously, you may have been a Christian for 50 years or more, or you may be someone who's still considering following Christ. I mean, we run the gamut in this room. Either way, you come into the family of God and you say to the Lord, Lord, I have a problem with my temper. I'm giving it over to you. I need for you to take away my anger and replace it with your patience. You begin to ask Him to see people through your eyes. You begin to choose to forgive those who hurt you. And an amazing thing's going to happen. Not only is your heart going to be filled with, with this new kind of peace, not only are, is your list of enemies going to grow shorter and your life is going to grow less stressful, believe it or not, I learned this myself, you stop expressing anger so often, you feel angry less often. Not only is that going to happen, that's going to be good, it's going to impact the people around you. Right now, I mean, you've got people who are desperately longing to see that kind of change in your life. Their lives are going to be so much richer and happier if they see a version of you that's always the person they love and not some monster that explodes at certain moments. Your neighbors, your coworkers, even people who you don't necessarily like are going to see the change in you. And it's going to be more persuasive to them than anything I as a pastor could ever say or any commercial we could put on the air, or any billboard we could put on I-45 or 105, it's going to change their eternity. And someday, you'll be walking in the streets of gold in the New Jerusalem, and you'll come across a person and say, hey, I didn't know you were a follower of Christ. And they'll say, I wasn't until I saw what happened to you. And that day when I said that thing that always made you flip out, and this time you didn't flip out, and you acted like a normal person, and I thought, what happened? And then you'll look back to this day and you'll think, yes, thank you, Lord, for confronting me about my problem. It's about deliverance. It's about rescue. It's about life change. That's what should be happening. I don't know, you may have just come here thinking, I'll, I'll do my religious time for 30 minutes and then I'm gone and I can forget about it. But God has something else in mind. And I'm not asking for any kind of outward sign unless you feel led to do it. I'm asking you to get before the Lord when I'm lead us in prayer in about 30 seconds and just say, Lord, here's my start. I'm admitting I have a problem. Please show me the way.